well met everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So like I kind of teased last week, this week I'm going to be talking about the first Thanksgiving, which you probably already figured out if you read the title, but that's okay. So to understand the first Thanksgiving, we kind of have to go way back even before then at why the pilgrims came over here in the first place, who they were, and what exactly was the climate like in the New World for the Native Americans and European interactions. Because there's a lot to unpack right there. So before I get into all of that, I want to do sort of a little mini mid-roll. There's a lot of information, so I'm not sure I'll actually have time to squeeze one in without making this a ridiculously long episode. So basically, I want to talk about World Anvil, which is one of the sponsors for the network, for Nerdsmith, the network. They are a fantastic site. It's worldanvil.com. Oh, hi, Mowgli. (laughs) Well, as you can hear, Mowgli also likes World Anvil, but they've got an amazing website where you can really create and build your world. There's a lot of wonderful features, such as being able to link different characters to each other and establish their relationships with each other, things like that. There's a map feature that's really, really advanced. Definitely a fantastic site. Countless Heroes, the streaming show here on Nerdsmith, uses it constantly And we use it to keep everyone up to date. We use it to keep information straight on which NPCs do what, all of that kind of thing. So it's a really great website. Again, that's worldanvil.com. And with that, I'm going to get into this week's topic. So like I mentioned, to really understand everything about where the pilgrims were coming from, you kind of have to understand what came before. So if you look at what was happening in Europe and specifically in England, where a lot of the pilgrims originated from, there was a lot of sort of religious upheaval is probably the best way to put it. There had just been a reformation not long before, and it had caused a lot of changes to the church. And the pilgrims in particular were part of the Puritan sect. And the Puritans felt like the Reformation hadn't been strict enough. But then the rest of England didn't agree with them, and they were getting persecuted for their beliefs, so they left England. However, contrary to what is sometimes thought, based off of what we hear sort of secondhand from different sources, the Puritans didn't go directly from England to the New World. They actually moved to Holland first. And over in Holland, they hung out there for around 11 years, give or take. It's a little tricky with exact dates, obviously, because it was so long ago. But they were there for quite a while. Meanwhile, over in the New World and over by the New World, for a 100 plus years before the Puritans even got over there, Europeans had started going over and doing little forays into the area. Originally, when they discovered it, it's most likely because they were going after fish, especially if you go into northern, northern North America, way up by Canada uh, and the early Viking settlements that I talked about in a previous episode, the Vikings in North America one. There's the area that got uh, got referred to as Newfoundland 
given descriptions of the area from what few bits and pieces of information we have from back then, the area they landed or fished was somewhere around modern-day Newfoundland and Labrador area. They actually called it Newfoundland because it was a new-found land, a new-found island. So, you know, not the most original naming scheme, but it worked and it stuck. Got changed a little since we now say Newfoundland is one word, but, you know, same difference. So Europeans had been going over there and fishing in those really, really north waters for quite a while. And gradually they started going further south and working their way down the coasts. There was some fishing and also began to be some interactions with the Native Americans. Unfortunately, not all of those interactions were great, to put it lightly. The Native Americans obviously didn't know who these European people were. They looked very different. They weren't sure what to do with them. And the same went for the Europeans. The first Europeans to go over there were fishermen. So, I mean, most of them weren't literate. So we have very few records. And most of them, if they did write anything at all, it was just going to be some sort of really basic ship's log. There are some ship's logs, though, that shed some light on some of the things that Native Americans would have had to experience from their European visitors. And they're not all great. Um, the biggest problem is that the European people, specifically expeditions to go check out the area and or bring back curiosities and goods... Um, they kidnapped Native Americans and took them back to Europe. Sometimes it was treated as kidnapping. Sometimes it was slavery. Sometimes it was, you're kind of strange. I'm going to take you back to court so that the king and queen can look at you. Sometimes they were treated well and almost treated like house guests. There are several instances of Native Americans who eventually returned back to America and got to see their families and stuff again because they were treated well by their European hosts. However, there's a whole lot more that weren't. So it's not a great time in history for the Native Americans. To be honest, everything after this wasn't that great for them either, as far as interactions with Caucasian people goes. So there's that. But what information we do have indicates that because of the way they had to travel and how long they had to travel... Fishermen had to salt and dry their fish on land. So one of the things that was an indicator in old records of whether or not a ship was probably going to go fishing is how much salt they took with them. And there's a lot of ships that took a lot of salt and headed west towards the New World. So we can surmise, based off that information, that they did a lot of fishing and probably had some interactions with Native Americans, at least a little bit, even if it wasn't noted in the logs. One of the things they had to do, of course, is go on land to dry all this fish. And so during that time, they would have run into some Native Americans. Some of the earliest interactions, as far as we can tell, are described as being more basic trading. Like, you know, probably lots of pointing and gesturing, maybe a few words or nods kind of thing to get indications across of what you wanted. And people basically just traded little things back and forth. You know, the Native Americans had plants and jewelry and furs and things like that that the mariners didn't so they traded things back and forth and everyone was at least you know not necessarily happy and friendly but at least it was sort of basic but following the fishermen came the explorers and the explorers is really when the native americans got 
uh, I hesitate to say, well, I actually don't hesitate to say taken advantage of, because, let's be honest, they kind of did. And even before the explorers came over, some of the fishermen had taken people. There are records from 1502 about an English ship returning to England with hawks, an eagle, and three men taken in Newfound Island, clothed in beasties' skinnies, and eat raw flesh. So that was how they were described in the ship's logs as being brought back to England. With that particular ship, we don't know, were they slaves? Were they guests of somebody? It's up in the air. There are other ones. Um, for example, back in 1502, again, same year, but a different ship. I'm going to butcher this name, so I apologize. It's a Portuguese name, and I'm not sure how to say it. I think it's Joao? Joao? J-O-A-O. Sorry if I butchered that horribly. I'm sure I did. Fernandez. But he traveled to Newfoundland and ended up bringing back three Native Americans to Bristol, which was in England. And then if you keep going through history, there's more of them. It was pretty common for especially French and English sailors to kidnap or quote-unquote borrow Native Americans to prove they had been to the new world it was a there's nowhere else i could have gotten these people from look i actually went there sort of bragging rights because that was the uh, not necessarily the easiest but it was the most concrete visual you cannot dispute that i have been to the new world kind of evidence unfortunately they are also people so that sucks and some of these native americans never went back home there's a few that did. Like I mentioned, there's some that were almost like guests where they were held and then got returned home. So for them, it was a much, much better experience. But as a whole, the majority of them never got to see their homeland again. They were slaves or oddities or, you know, some like something in a carnival that you would go see and stare at, like a, like a freak show type of thing. That's how they were treated almost, like a museum curiosity. So you can imagine, you know, you go from running around free at home, like, yes, maybe you're fighting with other tribes, but at least you have your freedom and your family, and all of a sudden you're in this rickety old ship with a bunch of nasty sailors. Then you're in a land you've never been to before. The weather's completely different. The people are completely different. They keep staring at you and poking at you. I mean, I can't imagine this was fun for them at all. So those sorts of things had already been happening for a while, and that was even before the pilgrims even thought about going to the New World. So you have to keep all of this in mind when you're considering how the Native Americans received the first American or the first European settlers that actually settled. There's a reason the Native Americans were not happy to see us. It wasn't just we showed up and they thought we invaded and they were angry. Our people, the European people, had been stealing their family members for years and taking them away and causing trouble like that for years. So this is not something that the Native Americans just randomly decided was a problem. There was history behind it. I am happy to say there were some Native Americans who made it back, like I've mentioned before. There's a couple that are more famous than others, particularly because in our American history, they interacted with the Pilgrims, so they're part of our American history. But beyond that, there are some, such as Epinau, I think I'm saying that right, Epinau was from a tribe in sort of the Martha's Vineyard area of New England, 
And he figured out that the people in Europe were obsessed with gold. He was over there long enough, he figured that much out. And he was able to trick the people who were holding him as a quote-unquote guest that he knew where to find gold back in the Martha's Vineyard area. So if they took him back to America, he could show them exactly where to find a ton of gold. Obviously, Europeans at the time, given their mindset of we are superior to all the other quote-unquote savages, not a word I condone, but that's what they thought at the time, they felt like they were getting the great deal out of this. Oh, we've completely shown this savage person from the new world that our land is superior and he wants to help us. This is fantastic. You know, all that kind of mentality. So they, it never even occurred to them that he was going to betray them, which makes it fantastic in my opinion. So they get there and Epinau, who now speaks in at least enough English to get by, was speaking with his relatives in their native language. Because where they landed, the area that the ship got to, was where Epinau was from. So he's talking with his cousins and his relatives, and they're discussing back and forth. And basically, they conspired to free Epinau. So they're talking like this. Epinau's telling the Europeans one thing and telling his relatives the truth. And then Epinau jumped into the water and made for sure. And as he did... All of his relatives rained down arrows on the unsuspecting Europeans on the ship. So Epinau was able to escape, and mo as far as we know, his relatives and everybody did too. So Epinau got home free and clear. And we know he actually lived for quite a while because there are accounts of him being visited later by future European visitors to the land. Um, they weren't received very warmly by him and his people for obvious reasons, but he did meet with them. Another thing that I feel like is important to note is that even though Plymouth and the P the Pilgrims and everything is sort of recognized as one of the – is uh, sometimes it gets referred to as the first American settlement and stuff like that, and it technically it wasn't. There were a couple beforehand. It's just that the Pilgrims and Plymouth were one of the first successful ones because we'd had a few that didn't go so well. Two of those include Roanoke in Virginia. So for anyone who's ever heard of Roanoke, which I don't think I've done an episode on that, but I should because it's very interesting. Roanoke basically was this settlement that was there. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a couple people had to leave to go back for more supplies, they made it back later than they expected to. And the entire colony was just gone. No evidence of graves, no evidence of people, no evidence of nothing. So no one knows what actually happened. There's a lot of different suspicions in various directions, but no one knows definitively what happened to those people. The only clue left behind on purpose by the settlers was a single word carved into, I believe it was a tree. So literally, we have no idea what happened to them. They just poof, disappeared. And there were 107 settlers there. So we don't know what happened to them. It's referred to as the Lost Colony. Another one was a one called Poplum, which was actually in what is modern day Maine. So Poplum gets referred to as the ghost colony, and that one occurred in 1607. It had a lot of different troubles, including things like the colonists not doing well and illness and also the colonists having issues with the local tribes. There, it was just riddled with problems one after the other, and things weren't managed well. So ultimately what ended up happening is even though they had a solid settlement there, 
the colonists just picked up and left and went back to Europe because everything was going so horribly they just couldn't deal with it anymore. So it's referred to as the ghost colony because they left behind basically a ghost town. So that sort of sets the stage for you in terms of the kinds of things that were going on in North America, in the new land, the new world, whatever term you want to use for it, when the pilgrims headed over there. There hadn't really been any great successful towns. Uh, Jamestown became a permanent colony, but it was further south than where the pilgrims ended up. Interesting note is that the pilgrims were actually supposed to go to Virginia. They had been granted permission by the crown to settle in Virginia. However, they were blown totally off course and ended up way far north up in New England, where we know they landed and settled down. Okay, so now we get into the pilgrims themselves. So like I mentioned, the pilgrims were a sect of Puritans, and they were known as separatists at the time. They weren't called pilgrims. That word came later. And as I mentioned, they wanted the Reformation to go even further than it did. So because of that, they were sort of ostracized. Nobody wanted to deal with them. They didn't want to go as far as the separatists did. And the separatists ended up fleeing to Holland in 1607. So they went there because Holland had religious freedom, even back in 1607. And they stayed there for quite a while. But as they had lived there for a while and grown there for a while in terms of the children, they started to worry that their children were going to lose their British English heritage, which was for them something that was a concern. The other thing too is that they had trouble adjusting just in general. Most of them had come from more farmland type areas and in Holland where they were able to find places to live that wasn't the environment. It was much more factory and a little more industrial. Not true industrial the way you and I think of it, but, you know, the 1600s version. So it was something that was really different for them. They weren't used to being in, like, cities. They were used to just being out in the farmland. And so that was an adjustment they weren't really prepared for. Because of that combination of factors, they decided after they'd been in Holland for roughly 11 years or so that they wanted to go to the New World and settle there instead because then they could establish their own colony. It could be exactly what they wanted it to be, all of that kind of thing. Uh, Later papers that were written about them is when they were first referred to as the pilgrims because they were a group of religious pilgrims, basically. They were going to the New World to start a colony for religious freedom. That was basically their goal. And it wasn't just the Puritan separatists who were part of the pilgrim group. The pilgrims were actually a mix of the Orthodox separatists and then a lot of other settlers that were hired by the investors into the endeavor. The reason being that some of the Orthodox separatists didn't actually want to leave. I mean, you know, just like anything, when you're talking to a large group of people, there's almost never going to be unanimous consensus. There's always going to be someone who says, "Mm, I don't agree. And basically that's what happened. There were a group of separatists that wanted to leave and go establish a colony somewhere that could be just their own. And then there's another group that said, no, we're good here. So some stayed in Holland and or other places in Europe and some ventured off to the new world. So a lot of time later when the article was written that calls them pilgrims for the first time that I mentioned, uh, that's also when they referred to the non-separatists as saints and strangers. 
So that's how they were referred to. There were the pilgrims who were there from the Orthodox separatists, but then also they had their saints and strangers with them. And just as a group, we call them pilgrims. They left from Plymouth, England in July of 1620. We don't know the exact date, but we do know that they had to turn back twice. The reason being that they had a second ship they were originally going to take with them called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell was not great in terms of condition. It kept leaking and it was eventually deemed unseaworthy. So basically, they started off with two ships, but they had to leave one behind because it just was not functional enough. And during that time, you know, especially back then, ships do not move as quickly. So between July and September is how long it took them to go back and forth the two times. And then finally, they were on their way on September 6th of 1620, sailing for the New World. As I mentioned earlier, they were blown super off course. So lots of storms and bad weather and probably some navigational mistakes had them ending up way up in New England instead of down in Virginia, where they had originally been aiming for. So if they even had to at one point, because their ship was also old, the Mayflower ship that they had was not a fancy schmancy ship. These were not rich, rich people. Their ship was almost broken apart at one point. Luckily, they had hidden a printing press amongst their supplies that they were taking with them from the British authorities. And so what ended up happening is they were able to use some of the metal, like the big pieces of metal from the printing press to prop up a beam inside their ship so that the ship stayed together. So I can't even imagine how terrifying that would have been, but thank goodness for the written word, right? Yay, printing presses. So the storms and everything had them ending up in New England's coastal area around November 21st. All of these dates are somewhat approximations because even though they were keeping track at sea and everything, it's still going to be slightly skewed. And of course, nowadays we know time zone differences. So for them, it was November 21st, but who knows? It could have been November 22nd for somebody else and all that fun business. Anyway, they got to the coast and they hung out in sort of a bay area. They didn't immediately go to land. When they did go to land, it was in, we know it was in November of 1620 that they first set foot on the ground. And it wasn't at Plymouth. They were actually at Pamet Sound, which is near current day Cape Cod. Um, there's a whole bunch of monuments in New England that have little placards and things that say, like, here's where the pilgrims first put their feet on the ground, and here's Pilgrim or Plymouth Rock, and here's da-da-da and da-da-da. So there, there's tons of little plaques everywhere indicating these things. And if you're in New England, or if you decide to go to New England and want to look them up, then I'm there's all sorts of websites that talk about the history of these things, and you can look for the information there. So they landed there, but they weren't well-received by the local Native Americans. Uh, those Native Americans in particular, being in the farther north, had had a lot of interactions with European settlers and mariners and explorers. So I can only imagine that they didn't have the best history with them. However, what the, uh, what the pilgrims did also didn't help a whole lot. So... The pilgrims, of course, had been on a ship forever, all of this stuff. They actually had one or two people with them who'd been to the New World before. Not necessarily as settlers, but they'd at least traveled to the New World before. And they, at one point, saw a couple of Native Americans off in the distance. 
I want to be clear, the pilgrims, by all accounts and everything we know about them, they were not there for aggressive reasons. They were not trying to take over people's land. They were not trying to invade the New World and kick out the Native Americans or anything like that. The pilgrims themselves just wanted freedom to practice their religion when they settled there. However, some of the initial stuff they did wasn't great. One of those things is that after following those Native Americans who did not want to talk to them, they ran and hid in the trees or something, you know, just watching the pilgrims from a distance. Um, they ended up stumbling across a Native American gravesite or burial ground area and discovered some buried corn that was there for the winter stores for that particular tribe, specifically for the Wamp. I'm going to butcher this. I'm so sorry if you're from this tribe and listening Wampanoag tribe and they were so hungry and needed food and they they hadn't planned for a New England winter they'd been planning for a Virginia winter so they ended up stealing a bunch of corn and beans and other things from that stash because they needed it to survive so I mean they weren't doing it to be cruel or anything like that it's still not great some accounts also mention that the pilgrims had plans to pay back the tribe later. Like, they felt horrible that they were doing it, but they needed the food. And that area now gets referred to as Corn Hill. And it's in what is now referred to as Pilgrim Village near North Truro in New England. So if you know what that is, you can look it up and go check it out. Oh, and it's important to note, actually, that another tribe that was in that same area that might have also had some stuff stolen from them is the Nauset tribe, N-A-U-S-E-T. I think I said that right. But anyway, at that point, they were sleeping on the ship, going to land during the day, and most of the women and children stayed on the ship. Realizing that the Native Americans in the area they had originally landed were not super friendly with them, they decided to go check out a little further south, and they sailed down into what we now know as Plymouth Harbor. So they arrived in Plymouth Harbor, and again, children slept on the ship, so did the women for the most part, until buildings and everything had been erected. They found this area definitely a little more hospitable. This was around December 20th of 1620 that they went down and arrived in Plymouth Harbor. One of the things that prompted this, beyond the fact that the Native Americans were just generally not happy about them being there at the first landing, is also that on December 6th, the Native American tribes attacked the pilgrims. Do you want to be clear, though, again, this was not an unprovoked attack because technically the pilgrims had stolen from them. So there were reasons why the Native Americans attacked plus all the history that I've already talked about. So that December 6th attack led to them arriving in Plymouth Harbor at December 20th because they said, nope, we're done, peace out, we're going to go find another spot. And that was December 20th of 1620. A few days later, we don't know the exact date, but a few days later, they stepped onto the actual land. And of course, we have the whole Plymouth Rock situation it's hard to say if that was actually the first rock they stepped on. Basically, what happened is someone who was a child in the early Plymouth colonies pointed at it and said, that's the rock. He had been told by his father, who had been in Plymouth three years later. So it wasn't one of the original settlers. It was someone who came three years later. And then his child, as a much, 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 much older adult, said, this is the rock that my dad was told they all stepped on. And that's how we kind of know where Plymouth Rock is. But 
the first winter, their first winter there, is very well chronicled because the governor at the time, or at least one of the people who became governor, uh, William Bradford, kept a journal called Of Plymouth Plantation, and it was published in 1657. So his journal was from that first winter, but it, they didn't publish it till many years later. And one of the things he talks about is the fact that they lost 45 settlers out of 102 during the first winter, because they'd already lost a couple before they even made it to Plymouth and made it to the winter. And part of this was disease, part of this was starvation. The seeds they had brought with them were not the right kind of seeds to grow in New England soil and weather. They had brought seeds that were supposed to be good for Virginia, which is, you know, many miles south, does not have the same weather patterns. So basically they got kind of screwed over by where they landed. There's not a lot of things they could have done to change that unless they continued going south. But by this point, they'd been traveling for so long, they just wanted to settle somewhere, which I can understand. We do know also that they'd been weakened by travel. Travel back then was not super sanitary. I mean, not that it's the most, most sanitary thing ever now. But we at least have things like hand sanitizer and we bathe regularly. They didn't have that. So there were a lot of people who were weak or sick from all the travel on the ships and the lack of good food. That resulted in all but five of their adult females passing away. So every adult female, except for five, passed away. They had a lot of children with them, some of whom didn't even have parents, either because their parents died during this winter or because they had come over without parents, which was something that was not uncommon at the time. If you needed to sort of bolster your settlement numbers, you shoved a bunch of orphans on the ship with everyone else so that you had more people. Sounds a little harsh, but at the same time, you know, who knows, depending on circumstances, the orphans might have had a better life there than in the workhouses back in England. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's hardships either way. It's not great. But things began to look up a little bit for the Plymouth settlement when a Native American man all by himself just started walking out of the woods very calmly, not aggressively, and he came over to say hello to them. His name was Samoset, and he was a native of a Maine tribe but had come down to talk to them. And he actually spoke English, not perfect. His English was very broken, but he did speak English because he had done a lot of trading with some of the different mariners and explorers who had come over to the New World. So he was able to speak with them at least a little bit. And he actually explained that he was a chief of the Abenaki tribe up in Maine. He introduced them to Squanto, whose real name I can't say. He had, he had a, it, it's like Nasquantum. I think I'm saying that right. But he's referred to in history quite often as Squanto, S-Q-U-A-N-T-O. So Squanto and Samoset were friends and they brought over other Native Americans. Now, historically going back, we have more information that now tells us that initially the Native American tribes had tried to use magic and their mysticism and shamans to sort of force the Europeans out. And when that didn't work, they decided to do peace, which did work for quite a while. So Squanto and Samoset were there basically to represent the tribes of the area. And Squanto introduced the pilgrims to Massasoit, which I might not be saying right, M-A-S-S-A-S-O-I-T, who was a Wampanoag, I can't say these, Wampanoag, W-A-M-P-A-N-O-A-G, 
chief in that area. Between Squanto and Samoset and Masamsoate, they were able to do a lot of negotiation back and forth. And then they actually ended up in 1621, so towards the middle or end of 1621, they had the very first peace treaty. So the Native American tribes in the area led by Masasoit and Squanto and Samoset made a peace treaty with the pilgrims of the Plymouth colony. So this was the first time this had happened, but basically they agreed, we're going to be peaceful, we're going to help each other, we're going to try to be friends. Neither group wanted to antagonize the other, neither group wanted there to be war with the other, at least at the time. Keep in mind, this was still, for the most part, with maybe a few additions from a ship or two coming in, this was still mostly just the original settlers from the pilgrims. So it was still the people who were just seeking religious freedom and wanted to have a happy, peaceful life somewhere. This was their goal. It was years later when things started to go downhill, which isn't the topic of this particular episode, so I'll skip it. Getting into the first Thanksgiving. So the first Thanksgiving, we only have one written account of the actual first Thanksgiving, but we do know that it was involving the pilgrims, Massasoit and his tribe, Squanto and Samoset. So basically, this group of people orchestrated this sort of peaceful gathering of the two groups for everyone to meet. The information we do have is from a letter written by Edward Winslow, who was one of the settlers, and it was sent in December 1621 to his friend back in England. One thing that's in the letter is that he talks a lot about the food and the different things they had available and how plentiful everything was. We think, historically looking back on it, that this is partly because he was trying to give his friend information that would encourage more people to come over. Although, based off the description, if they did actually have all this food, they had a pretty decent amount by that point. Again, there's not a lot of records from back then, but, you know, it's very possible that the Native Americans were also showing the pilgrims, here's some tricks for how to survive here in this spot, because they had been living there for generations. We know from Edward's letter that the feast lasted for three days, and it was supposed to celebrate sort of the fall harvest and the end of the season. So we suspect that even though now we celebrate at the end of November, the historical one probably happened closer to October sometime. We don't know an exact date, but sometime in October is a little more likely. And then we also know from his letter again that it was more diplomatic than social. The two groups couldn't really talk to each other very well with a few exceptions. So for the most part, it was like, oh, hi, yeah, I hope you're like, you know, just gesturing at each other. I hope you're enjoying the food. Yes, it's delicious. No, I can't understand you. But yes, hi. Like, you know, just very, very, very political show of we are making an effort to not be enemies is basically what the whole first Thanksgiving was. We obviously have changed that a lot over the years, but that's what it initially was. So everyone was friendly with each other, but it wasn't a social gathering where people were talking and laughing because most of them couldn't speak each other's languages yet. I'm sure that they learned some as time went on, because why wouldn't you? But they didn't know a lot at the point. And we do know that they had some social interactions. For example, we know that Massasoit was at Governor Bradford's wedding in 1623. So we know that they got along well enough to have social interactions like that. Also, according to the letter, the pilgrims, in terms of food, 
killed a fowl. It doesn't say turkey, it just says fowl. So we don't know if that's chicken that they brought with them or if it's some sort of pheasant that was local. We don't know. But they killed fowl and they gathered food from their harvests. And then the Native Americans went out and killed a bunch of deer and had that. One thing that's also mentioned in the letter is that the Native Americans gave thanks for all of the food that they killed. So they gave thanks back to their spirits and gods for the deer and the harvest and the animals that became their meal. So obviously it's hard to say 100%, but it is very possible that that's partly how Thanksgiving became a thing. The Native Americans were giving thanks. We saw that. The European settlers saw that and decided, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we're okay with giving thanks. And eventually it became Thanksgiving. I didn't actually look up the etymology, the language source of Thanksgiving, but given that this is our only written resource describing it, it seems highly suspect that that may be where it came from. Some other details we know about the actual first Thanksgiving is that there were 45 pilgrims still alive from the original 107 who set sail. Now, granted, a couple of those 107 might have been sailors who took the ship back. That is possible. I don't have any information on that. But nonetheless, they were down quite a few people, and only five of them were adult women. So there was not a lot of new children coming in anytime soon. But like I said, we do know that a good chunk of the settlers they brought with them were children because they were trying to bolster their numbers. We also know that it's unlikely that they had turkey. He mentions fowl, but wild turkeys are pretty hard to catch, and the guns of the time were just not that great. Now, it's possible the Native Americans could have caught a turkey or two, but given what grows easily and is easily found in the area, it's a lot more likely that they had things like shellfish, mussels, lobster, deer, geese, ducks, and cornbread, and probably some berries, though not cranberry sauce because that wasn't a thing yet, and also probably not potatoes. There were no potatoes in the New World at this point. They got brought over later by a different settlement. So as things continued progressing, you know, everything was going okay for the pilgrims and the local tribes right by them. Everyone was getting along okay, but as more people came in, and specifically more Puritans came over, the, the pilgrims themselves had been fairly open-minded of a group, but some of the Puritans that came over later were very close-minded and were very not okay with the Native Americans. So that led to a lot of intolerance back and forth between different groups. It is important to note that for quite a while, the Plymouth settlement was very peaceful with its neighbors, but as more European settlers came over and started taking over land, and as more people came over and were less tolerant of each other in both directions, there ended up being a lot of wars, and at one point, the son of Massasoit, so the son of one of the friends of the pilgrims, actually attacked settlements, including Plymouth, because he was leading a war against the Europeans. And they called him King Philip, was his sort of moniker. His actual name was Metacomet. And he was, like I said, he was the son of Massasoit. But at that point, so much had changed between relations with the Europeans and the Native Americans that he was all out attacking them. Because unfortunately, the majority of people who came over after those initial pilgrims 
were not as open-minded, not as peaceful thinking. A lot of them just wanted to take. Or in some cases, it wasn't even settlers necessarily. They were being sent by companies. Different companies and investors would basically fund an expedition. And the whole point of the colony was to send money back to the investor. So these colonies were literally being established just to make money. That wasn't what happened with the pilgrims. And so their look at their outlook on everything and the way they handled their relationship with the Native Americans was very, very different. So that was a very long episode, even though I tried to keep it short. And that is the short version of the true story of the first Thanksgiving. Were we giving thanks? Yes. Did we have turkey? Eh, maybe. Were there Native Americans and pilgrims acting peacefully and enjoying a meal together? Definitely. But some of the things that get sort of froofed up for kids' stories and whatnot are a little questionable. So hopefully this has been informative for you. I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you're here in North America like me and celebrating it. If you're in other parts of the world, then I just hope that your day goes really well. And with that, I will say goodbye for this episode and I'll be back next week. Please remember to check out all the other wonderful shows and productions that we have at nerdsmith.org. You can submit questions or topic suggestions to me on Twitter at amethyst underscore magic with a CK. Or you can email me at geekthyself at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. Until then, don't forget to geek thyself. Hello, fans of Critical Role. Do you mean to make your music more melodious? Do you seek to sing like Scanlan Shorthalt? We'll look no further than Crosswords, a new video series from the creator of the Critical Role Hamilton mashup album. And also this song. Crosswords with Will Crossway. Advice and analysis for the musician at the gaming table. Available on nerdsmith.org or wherever you watch your YouTube videos. YouTube, right? Probably YouTube.